0: That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Jumba. JumbaCasino.com. Number 16. Operated by law. 18+ terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the Strand Technologies podcast. I'm your host and founder of Infinita Fund, Nicholas Ansinger. In this show, we talk about how to accelerate the future. Our thesis is that many life improving technologies are held back by institutional barriers. How can we unblock vast opportunities while mitigating against the risks? What ethical principles, rules, and regulations can guide us on that path? We will discuss these questions with entrepreneurs, policymakers, and industry experts. If you enjoy the show, please give us five stars and visit us at infinitafunds.com to join the community. Today is December the 4th in 2022, and my guest is Mark Lutter. So Mark is the founder and former executive director at Charter Cities Institute a nonprofit which is building the ecosystem for charter cities. Mark has a PhD in economics from George Mason University. Mark also had, or still has, a podcast called the Charter Cities Podcast. Fantastic listen for anyone who wants to learn more about this fascinating movement. Today, we're going to talk about charter cities, cities as a stranded technology, the future of city development, and living in physical spaces. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me.
1: Mark, besides what I said, what would you like listeners to know about you? Sure. So I grew up in D.C. I come from a long line of distinguished bureaucrats. That's the joke. They're not that distinguished. I did my undergraduate at Maryland. I did my Ph.D. in economics at George Mason University, got interested in charter cities there, dissertation on charter cities. And what I saw was a lot of interest and excitement around these ideas, but little kind of successful practical application. I believed that thinking about these ideas as a tool for economic growth and development would allow a larger coalition to be built that could be more meaningful in developing new city projects and charter city projects. This coalition would include new city developers. There's, depending on how you want to count, over 200 new cities being built around the world right now. These are people who understand the finances of Large infrastructure construction, of negotiating with governments, of land acquisition, right? That's obviously an important component of charter cities. It means working with development economists who tend to influence how low and middle income countries think about economic development, what projects to take. Um, It means uh, working with media and sometimes journalists. And this can be tricky because a lot of folks with a kind of more tech background might be a little bit skeptical of journalists. But given very capital intensive, large physical infrastructure developments, these always have a political component and charter cities have an extra political dimension in the sense of these kind of concessions to the city government. And so ensuring that you can tell your story effectively and get people to support that vision, that kind of prosperity that you're going to bring, I think is critically important. And so I founded the Charter Cities Institute to build that coalition, to make it easier, to work in multiple cities, to, to, to develop multiple projects. And we do a little bit of work in that in America, but most of the work for the Charter Cities Institute is in Africa. And we are working with some new city projects with some governments and we're seeing, we opened our a regional office in Zambia about a year ago, and we're seeing increasing interests that we think can really be leveraged to help create charter cities and hopefully lift tens of millions of people out of poverty so we just met at
0: the event by the foresight institute probably the premier organization for futurists who are into nanotechnology ai space exploration biotech longevity what's the connection between charter cities and these frontier technologies
1: yeah so the charter cities institute we focus mostly on catch-up growth how to allow for low income places to have better economic growth and hopefully get as rich as high income places but in addition to that, I think charter cities can also push the frontier of technologies. This is a little of what seasteading was and is trying to do. The U.S. is written on 250-year-old code. And the idea is there are probably some regulatory barriers that are preventing new technologies from being built and developed. There are obviously technical constraints. There are engineering constraints, but there are probably some regulatory constraints as well. And charter cities can help overcome those regulatory constraints. One example is drones. Very few drones and VTOLs are tested in the U.S. Oftentimes they go to Canada, maybe New Zealand. And so maybe if you have a city development in Central America or in the Caribbean, you could allow for much easier testing, a better kind of regulatory regime. And so that might allow for the development of these new technologies more rapidly than Mm -hmm. if you rely on the kind of slow American system. Couldn't agree more. I think that's the main, also one of the main hopes
0: that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. You wrote an article that I can relate to a lot with the title COVID radicalized me. Uh Can you talk a bit about that?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I wrote this article in, I don't know, maybe it was March, maybe April of 2020, where I think lots of maybe tech-adjacent folks had a similar experience, where seeing in January and February people not taking it very seriously. I remember I made a bet with a friend of a friend it's just like $10. I said, they're going to be lockdowns in the US in two months. And she said, no. And I asked why. And she said that US doesn't do that. And I chatted with my dad and I was like, our track and trace system is not going to work. And he's like, yeah, it's going to work. Like, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, you don't understand. China is literally shutting down cities, right? That is a big thing. And this, I think, extreme sense of complacency And the just rank failure of many American institutions. And my dad was working in the FDA, and when I at the time, and I was chatting with him, and yeah, we've got a bunch of people working on tobacco policy. I'm like, take the people from tobacco policy and have them work on COVID. Maybe they're ten times less effective as they were on tobacco policy, but COVID right now is twenty times more important than tobacco policy. To me, as an entrepreneur, it's like that's obvious. But like in a government, especially a kind of late stage sclerotic government like the US, it's just next to impossible to do these types of things. And so prior to COVID, I'd been skeptical of institutions like, yeah, can we do better? Yeah, probably. But COVID, I think, in a way, took the mask off and really showed deep and systematic failures that I think require pretty substantive and radical solutions to ensure that America can continue to be the best place to live in the world.
0: Yeah, I entirely agree. And I had actually the same kind of experience, right? I had some of these ideas that attracted me to that space before, but through COVID became so real, right? We just saw that we have this amazing ability to develop new drugs, to develop vaccines, like Moderna developed the first vaccine in one day. And we have the ability to share like data sets, to share and communicate information across borders through millions of people. And we could develop simultaneously on solutions but then only the ones best connected and with deep pockets could get through fda approval to bring those solutions to market i was like here's something that's wrong and we need to start thinking about how to fix or build better institutions right it was part of my motivation that attracted me to that space as charter cities as the experimentation fields where we can test how can we make these better institutions work, how can we let them do the same job and compete with what some of these governments are doing and hopefully make them see these failures and give them a better idea of how they can fix it, like what other institutions they can adopt.
1: How does a typical charter city look and how does it get started? So a charter city is just a new city with better laws. And the new city means that it's typically on a greenfield site, or maybe it's taking a kind of failed previous development and injecting it with capital and expertise and everything there. So that just looks like a, depending on the exact circumstance, but a large scale real estate project. And obviously, depending on the target market, depending on what businesses you're going to attract, it might look a little bit this way or that way. And then the better laws means that the government typically the federal government would want to pass some kind of special economic zone or charter city legislation that would say, all right, on the charter city level, you have jurisdiction over X, Y, Z. Maybe it's labor law, maybe it's visas and residence permits, maybe it's business registration, maybe it's all of that. And thinking about how to create a legal and regulatory environment that can really attract capital, attract people and stimulate economic development. And I think, Those are the two key components that make a charter city, but other important things to consider, where are you building a city, right? If you have the best laws in the world and you're you're in Antarctica, nobody's going to want to live there. So how do you identify potential locations where this kind of infrastructure, both physical and governance, can supercharge development? A A classic example is Shenzhen, where China created the Shenzhen Special Economic Zone, which is much closer to a charter city than most special economic zones in 1980, Five years later, Shenzhen had the tallest buildings in all of China. And so there was this really pent up demand because Mao forcibly prevented urbanization and China's legal and governance system was among the worst maybe in human history. So even marginal improvements there really allowed things to get supercharged. That's likely not to be repeated just given the kind of extreme success that happened, but it's possible to get degrees of that success depending on the conditions, looking at what urbanization rates are, what trade flows are, where that kind of extra sauce of capital plus governance can really lead to. The way we think about it at the Charter Cities Institute is what we want to do is achieve 1 to 2 percentage point higher growth than the surrounding region over a sustained time period. And right over 20, 30, 40 years, that's what leads people out of poverty that sustained economic development and charter cities as a mechanism to, to create that. So that's one point and two percent on top
0: of existing economic yeah. growth around, yeah. right? So it could be like 3, 4%, which if you do that over 100 years, will like 50x economic development or something like that how do charter cities get started or who starts them and what is the toolkit that you need to start one
1: sure there's no kind of standard playbook when i think about building new cities there's typically three reasons new cities start one is a natural economic reason this is typically a port sometimes a mine for some reason people move to an area eventually enough people live there that it's self-sustaining even without that initial economic rationale the second way is you can be a government and if you're a government You have two advantages. One, you have very deep pockets. And two, you can force your bureaucrats to live there. And this is Brasilia, this is Abuja, this is St. Petersburg, right? This has been a successful way to build new cities. The third way is religious. And this doesn't have to be religion per se, it can be a strong civic culture, but it needs to be tied with persecution, right? Persecution causes people to migrate. The civic culture or religion causes them to coordinate that mass migration to a specific place. That's Salt Lake City. That's Israel. And so thinking about what kind of form charter cities might take, if you look at, for example, in Saudi Arabia, Neom, it's a regional development project that has the line, right? I don't know. I think it's 170 kilometer skyscraper that is supposed to be a new city. And house 9 million people. But there they do have a lot of legal and governance reforms. And so that does definitely have charter city aspects, if not being a full charter city. And that's a government-led project. You can also look at Dubai, which it has many charter city-esque elements. And there it wasn't really, that was more of an economic reason where effectively it's an entrepot in a region that was experiencing a massive resource boom. And so people who wanted to put company headquarters there, right, it was the most tolerant place in the Middle East for a long time, combine that with successful taking advantage of regional missteps. So for example, Iran would raise tariffs and some of their traders would go to Dubai because it's like, all right, we can trade here a little bit more cheaply. Actually, Iranians outnumber Emiratis three to one in Dubai today, then you have Lebanon, uh, falling into civil war. And so then they say, all right, let's attract the kind of capital that Lebanon might have previously been the financial capital of the Middle East, but now we can do that. And so taking advantage of these kind of regional missteps uh, combined with large infrastructure construction and kind of being a tolerant entrepôt, allowed them to succeed. So that's a little bit more of the economic rationale. And we've seen uh, at the Charter States Institute, we tend to think the economic rationale is the best because that's the most scalable right? Look at where there are trade flows, look at where there is mass urbanization and see what you can do there, because that's how you can really create the growth to lift tens of millions of people out of poverty. What has changed since you found the Charter Cities
0: Institute?
1: Yeah, I, I think a handful of things. One, I think there's a lot more interest around charter cities today than there were a few years ago. We've made decent inroads to some of the communities that we're targeting. We have a bit more experience working with governments. We've seen in Honduras, Prospera, I see uh, startup, Niam got announced. And then we have kind of adjacent ideas. For example, Blagi Srinivasan, uh, his network state is has some overlap with charter cities. And so I think there is a lot more interest in there. Patry Friedman started Prunoma with capital. So there's a bit more early stage capital that's available for charter cities as well. I think the kind of key looking at the next five years is figuring out all right, like how do we take this momentum? How do we take these early successes and really consolidate it and get several like substantive wins on the ground? If we look at kind of venture capital, uh, right, new markets are validated in venture capital with an exit. All right, you have a successful company that does X, suddenly everybody wants to do X. And given the timelines of charter cities, right, it might not be a monetary exit per se, but something that's sufficient to justify this is a valid business model, this is a viable mechanism to engage with governments, whatever it actually is, would I think kind of supercharge things and hopefully allow for a lot of the projects that are currently ongoing to to pick up speed, pick up momentum, pick up capital, etc. Some listeners that hear that for the first time. Might, might here.
0: Oh, that's interesting. So, venture capital is funding new city development.
1: Yeah, early stage, and this is one of the challenges of charter cities: is how do you actually think about financing, right? When you're in the early stage, in terms of negotiating with government, in terms of acquiring land, etc. This is relative, it does that does approximately fit the venture capital profile. It's high risk, potentially high reward depending on the scale of the project. And then a lot of the kind of historic intellectual interest in charter cities has come from the tech community. And I think that's why those dollars tend to be some of the early financing dollars. However, that being said, it's not the same fit, right? Tech works because it's fact it works with venture capital because it's a zero marginal cost per additional user. And that means that. You can scale extremely rapidly and you have very large market size. And if you're building a city, it's not a zero marginal cost per additional user, right? Like you need to build more sidewalks, more roads, more utilities, et cetera, that, that, that does have a cost. So longer term, right? Once you get to the infrastructure build out, it looks a little bit more like a traditional real estate project. You need to be pretty, I think, I don't know, clever, open, creative with financing because One, you're working in uh, frequently in emerging markets where the capital markets might not be as developed and liquid, particularly in Africa. There is not that much like private capital flowing around for large infrastructure with the exception of resource extraction. And so that means you might have to go to the development banks, right? African Development Bank, African Export-Import, et cetera. And so thinking about, yeah, how to sequence the financing, how to get the basic framework outline, how to attract the necessary capital for the build out and scale up and how all of those different things interact with each other and make sense. I don't think anybody has a, I don't know, perfect solution yet. But I think there is probably more information than there was five years ago about how to think about those trade-offs. So among the projects that are going on right now, What's roughly the share of what's venture
0: capital backed versus backed by international organizations like the African Development Bank or the World Bank or something like that versus other means of getting capital? Yeah, I
1: think that's a hard question to answer just because part of that is going to be how do you define a charter city, right? Mm -hmm. If you do it very strictly or very loosely. I would guess that for early stage projects, venture capital or if not venture capital, tech money picks up. 60 to 70%. But as soon as you actually move to the build out, it probably makes up, I don't know, 20-ish percent, maybe for the equity that you need for the build out for the real estate development. But I'm not privileged to the financial models of all the groups. I I chat with people and I have guesses about what they do and they might share, but it's not like I'm looking at the spreadsheets and have a super clear
0: idea. Yeah, yeah. but we know that there are some startup cities or startup cities that are venture capital finance, like Pronomous Capital Mm -hmm. is a funder of Prospera, for example of talent city the charter city network in nigeria or in africa so there is an emerging interest you already mentioned one potential to rapidly increase which is getting one big exit case what do you see as if you talk to people who want to put money into this what are the most interesting or most likely cases to generate these high returns of projects that are in development right now
1: yeah, I mean, I think the key is just getting the initial conditions right. The challenge with charter cities is that it's very location based. So, where do you find the land? Where do you find the government? that is willing to, that has all these pieces, right? You need a government that's willing to cut a deal, but you need land that is sufficiently well-located to justify that kind of investment. Ideally, it's you can piggyback off existing infrastructure, for example, an airport, a port, maybe a labor market that's two hours away, 90 minutes away. So you, your capital upfront capital costs are a little bit lower. And how do you get all of those things Together, and then how do you get the capital necessary to supercharge it? The cities, I think there is a kind of built in demand function to a lot of these projects. And you can make it a little bit better with better governance, you can make it a bit better with better infrastructure, but ultimately it's very difficult to change human migration patterns. And so finding this kind of, I don't know, maybe it's a distressed asset that would be doing much better except for poor management over several decades. Maybe it's a new kind of emerging trade network where there's already these trends happening and you figure out how to supercharge them. And so for example, if we look at the Mormons, right, when they settled Salt Lake city, that was a kind of religious settlement, but it was also built on the westward expansion of America, right? If the Mormons didn't settle Utah, then Americans would have settled it 15 years later, right? It wasn't fundamentally changing the pattern of mass migration. It was just supercharging it in a specific time in a specific place. And similarly, right, look at where urbanization is happening. It's Africa and Asia, or look where global migration patterns are. It's to kind of high-income countries like the US, like Canada, like Europe. Taking advantage of those trends, finding a good location that can do that, and a government that's willing to cut a deal, and capital that is willing to, to, to finance that initial infrastructure investment. That's where you get that kind of big win that, that validates this whole approach, I think. Are there any
0: particular...
1: Charter cities that you would point at success stories. If you talk, if you would talk like to an investor, historically it's Singapore, Shenzhen, Hong Kong, Dubai. Mm-hmm. Dubai, arguably, because it, it's basically run like a family office, and so because mm-hmm. of that, it's a little bit more, I don't know, salient. I think the projects that are currently ongoing. There's obviously been some increase in in, in valuation, but I think it's a little bit too early to say. I was pretty optimistic about Honduras with Prosper and Sudan Morazan. And now there's a little bit of uncertainty given that the government repealed the legislation. So perhaps if they, if Rasparo wins that, that kind of fight with the government, then that can be one of these success stories. But I think until that is resolved, it's difficult to have a strong opinion on what the outcome will be. And then there's a handful of other early stage projects that I'm cautiously optimistic about, but again, like these One of the challenges with charter cities is that the feedback loop is just so long, right? It's years, if not decades. And so that requires, I think, a little bit more the so awareness and focus on the initial conditions on getting everything because the kind of other examples just it's difficult to know exactly what's going right and what's going wrong because convincing people to move real estate these are all very long time horizon projects and it's difficult to know the counterfactuals um so i myself
0: based in prospera
1: and just for
0: as a background for listeners and feel free to edit or correct me but the story is, so Honduras adopted a very favorable legislation to allow for special economic zones called the ZEDE law in 2013. And that law allowed for the formation of three ZEDEs actually, Prospera, Sierra and Orchidea. And these are existing charter cities, startup cities, whatever you want to call it. The Honduran government changed this year to a government that's against these ZEDEs or these special economic zones. And they voted in Parliament to repeal the law, right? which means that no new ZS can be formed. Existing ZS have investment guarantees, although there's political uncertainty and the government hasn't come out yet with a clear statement, whether they or not they plan to honor these commitments, which is important as an assurance for investors. Next year, there's an opportunity because the vote has to be reaffirmed in Parliament right? So they can still vote against it, against upholding the ZA law. But correct me if I'm wrong, but the ZA law in Honduras was really a big beacon of hope in the community, right? Because it's so flexible and innovative from a legal perspective. What impact does that have or did that have on your work with the Charter Cities Institute in terms of telling other governments what they can do or what's possible?
1: Yeah. um, I mean, I lived in Honduras seven-ish years ago, 2014, 2015, during one of the early hype cycles. And a lot of my initial interest in charter cities came from Honduras. Part of the focus of starting the Charter Cities Institute was to diversify a little bit. Honduras legislation in Honduras was great, but there were many false starts. And then additionally, it was never really had huge legitimacy among the Honduran people. Uh, The legislation was initially passed in what might be described as a post-constitutional crisis where Zelaya, who was the president, tried to run for a second term. That was unconstitutional. He tried to do a non-binding referendum. Eventually, the military puts him on a plane and flies into Costa Rica. All right. So then you have the opposition take party, take power. Uh, However, and the opposition party passes the, the legislation. And then the first one is struck down by the Supreme Court. And then half the Supreme Court justices are fired. And then you get a new legislation that supposedly addresses the original critiques. For the record, I don't think that the Justices were fired for voting against the legislation. It was a kind of America-style left-right split on the Supreme Court. And I think the government in power was happy to get rid of the left-wing justices. At the same time, obviously, it doesn't engender a lot of confidence and legitimacy in a political regime when the Supreme Court is summarily fired. And I think that gets at the heart of the challenge of charter cities, is that you don't need them in places that are doing very well. Right. You don't necessarily need charter cities in the U.S. Right. People are like, oh, we can have a Hong Kong in the U.S. It's like you have Hong Kong in the U.S. It's called New York, except New York's much richer. It's called like Miami, like Hong Kong per capita GDP is what, like forty five thousand U.S. is thirty three, forty percent higher. You need these projects in places that do struggle with effective governance. However, if they were able to just snap their fingers and get better governance, they wouldn't really need charter cities. This is the kind of, I think, tension a little bit at the heart of charter cities is that. They're needed in places that oftentimes lack the ability to make these credible commitments that will attract investor dollars and allow for good governance for sustained economic growth. agree. I slightly
0: disagree on not needed in the United States, but maybe not for the same reasons that it is needed in emerging economies. So you still have a lot of problems in New York or San Francisco where we are right now in terms of the product that cities are offering. They offer it for a very high cost, for a very low quality Things are often very dirty and decrepit in many places in San Francisco and New York. And Even though you don't need it to get massively richer, you can have it to get just more effective governance on a city level, more pleasant neighborhoods, more walkable neighborhoods, yeah, the option of communal living. Yeah, and you don't need like charter
1: that. cities for that. Charter cities basically by definition require some form of federal legislation for some form of different type of governance. In the US, you can start a homeowners association and have whatever rules you want, or it can just be entirely private, like a shopping mall where you just rent out space. And so you can go to Nevada right now, right? buy a bunch of land, lease it out, have your own rules that require higher degrees of cleanliness, that require whatever. The basic challenge is, yeah, yes, I agree. San Francisco, New York could be substantially improved. However, this is I think the challenge of kind of coordinating mass migration is that even with their faults, people still want to live there. They're still wonderful places to live for a variety of reasons. And convincing people during COVID, we saw kind of some migration from to Austin to Miami. And looking back at that a year or two years later, I think it was a little bit overblown, right? Miami is not going to become a tech hub. They got some venture capitalists who wanted to pay 0% income tax, And they got some some founders who might want to do kind of consumer facing products, but they don't have the engineering base. Right. Like it's I think Austin I am relatively bullish on. They do have a solid engineering base. They do have a good university. But yeah, coordinating mass migration is really hard and you don't need federal legislation to build better, cleaner cities in the U.S. You need the demand and the demand isn't there. Yeah, fair enough. I acknowledge that point
0: as you don't need these major Legislative changes, at least. I'm myself thinking a lot, pondering about that point about the migration flows, because my wife and I, we moved to Prospera for two main reasons. One, I think it's a great business environment, right? I think you can get very creative in terms of the businesses you can do and overcome a lot of bad regulation, overregulation for very exciting new technology development. And also, we have like great community of people there that became friends that are also very entrepreneurial and very intentional. So these seem to me like two amazing value propositions. But it's at the same time, it's very hard to convince other people about those things.
1: Yeah, I think you have that. You also, we're seeing, like this is one of the new questions where I suspect I have a bit of disagreement about some other kind of charter city and network state advocates, where we are seeing increased competition for kind of top mobile talent, right? Portugal, Taiwan, Singapore are all trying hard to attract remote workers, kind of new cool tech scenes, et cetera. Miami did that relatively well. I think the basic question for me is, is several fold. Is one, right, like how much do these numbers increase over the next decade? Are we talking like one, let's say what what are we starting with? How many people are like that today? Let's say maybe hundred thousand, maybe a million. Right? What increase are we talking about over the next decade? Is it one order of magnitude? Is it two order of magnitude? If it goes from 100,000 to a million, it's an order of magnitude increase. It's a big number, but a million people is like ultimately not that many, especially when they're bouncing. There's so many places that are competing for their attention. If it's 10 million people, then you talk about that being enough to really get some kind of small cities, towns built up. 100 million people, obviously, that's a wholly different story. And I don't have a very clear idea of what these numbers are, but my guess is, that it's probably on the lower end compared to most other people, charter city advocates and network state folks. I think the other kind of challenge is, right, by definition, people who are highly mobile. And all right, you say, come to Prospera, people come to Prospera, like, yes, it's fun. I'm gonna stay here for six months. And six months later, they say, oh, Portugal sounds fun. Mexico City sounds fun, etc. And Getting them to necessarily be sticky in a specific place, I think is difficult when that is the type of person that you are targeting and attracting. And so I think there is, when thinking about kind of new city developments, if you're looking to do a city qua city, then thinking about some industries that might be a little bit sticky, that might require large labor pools that are interested in settling down and staying for the long term. And not digital nomads who probably don't have kids who just want to have a good time and talk to cool people, but aren't going to be there in three years or five years or whatever it is. And I think there is, that's not to say you can't be successful with kind of resort style towns development and you can grow those and make those much bigger. I do anticipate a handful of these resort style towns, the ones that embrace growth to become like basically very large towns or small cities over the next decade or two. Because with remote work, that's going to allow for increased ability to satisfy, let's say, environmental desires. If you don't want to live in New York or live on the beach or go live in a mountain, et cetera. However, is that more than just an environmental based amenity? Is this like changing the nature of the social contract or leading to new technologies or something? And to me, that's these are two different things. Like people will want environmental me- amenities, beaches, mountains, cool places to live. And that is, is overlapping, but fairly different from let's create a new city with better laws that can allow for new technologies to be enabled that wouldn't otherwise have taken place. Yeah. yeah. So I think it's a very interesting data points to think of. If
0: you found a new charter city, who do you want to attract? What's your customer persona? So it seems intuitively, right? So if you have one to 10 million people who are like young and mobile millennial digital nomads, right. And could be attracted to that. But I also, I think it's absolutely true that it's not enough. You can have a package where you stay there for three months, there for four months, but that won't decrease those numbers. And also what I see in Honduras is that the value is just much higher for someone from Honduras to come and work there. Like Honduran entrepreneurs, locals that work there can like double or triple or quadruple their income. Entrepreneurs from the mainland have much easier, or better business regulations and environment. Or if you like a smart graduate who went to school in the United States, the alternative would be to either stay in the United States where there's more opportunity and that's a place that could offer similar opportunities. So I very much agree with, it's very important to speak to the local migration pool,
1: right? Yeah, um, I totally agree. I, I mean, one, I think they're necessarily going to be a little bit more sticky. Hondurans are less likely to leave Honduras than Americans mm-hmm, who mm-hmm. are staying there. And then two, just in terms of, right, charter cities are inherently political projects and Without successful engagement of local communities, you're bound to build up resentment to get some populist politicians to attack you. And I think this is what we try to do with the Charter Cities Institute. I'm not sure we're fully successful, but I do think we are somewhat successful. Our office in Zambia is run by Zambians. We try to partner with groups on the ground. Ideally, those groups are from the places where they are are trying to build. In Zambia, we're working with a Zambian, Nigeria, with a Nigerian in Malawi. We're working with the Malawi government. And so it's kind of, all right, how do we take this high-level concept and how do we adjust it for local conditions and then work with the local actors in a way to meet their needs and their demands? Because, yeah, it's it, the kind of classic critique of charter cities is, oh, this is just neocolonialism. And I think that's incorrect for several reasons, but perhaps way to prove that it's incorrect and to make those criticisms fall flat is to make sure that the locals are meaningfully and truly benefiting from the projects that you are working on. Yeah, that's a, that's a partnership with if there's involvement
0: from someone who comes from someone else, it's always, uh, you, you already mentioned Balaji Srinivasan's, the network state. Can you talk a bit about that concept of a network state and what's your take? Is that vision aligned with yours? Where does it differ?
1: So if I am going to steal man the network state, I think the argument is basically, First create an online community that's around a very strong shared identity. And so maybe this shared identity is we want to be able to test any, we want to be able to, I don't know, do longevity stuff, whether that's lifestyle or whether that's like drug or whatever, having a very strong shared identity and you create that community, you build that community, and then you use that to negotiate with governments or countries to say, Hey, look, we want to come and build a community here. We have this community online. Can we please get this amount of land? Can we please allow ourselves to govern ourselves in XYZ manner, etc.? And this is, a, to the previous point I made, this historically has happened somewhat frequently with religions. I visited Portugal recently, and there's a Mennonite population. And the Mennonites are originally German. I think then they went to Russia, then they went to Canada, and then eventually they went to Portugal. And basically every time they would leave, it's because... Somebody would try to conscript them or force their kids to go to government schools. And they'd be like, no, look, we want our release, just leave us alone. And eventually they ended up in Portugal and they cut a deal with the government. Like, look, leave us alone. I don't, I don't even know if they pay taxes, but maybe they say, look, we'll pay 10% of our whatever taxes, but just leave us alone and let us do our thing. And I see kind of the Bellagi as a modern network state, as a modern kind of internet-based version of this. I mean, I think there's definitely overlap with charter cities in the sense that it's looking at migration, looking at new physical-based developments on some margin, trying to push the technological frontier. I think where I perhaps differ from him is, one, I tend to think institutions are very sticky. So the U.S., I just think, is going to be around in approximately its current form in 10 years and still a similar form in 50 years, et cetera. Are we going to have higher inflation? Maybe. Are there going to be a lot of changes? Like Maybe. But like the U.S., if you look at the collapse of the Roman Empire, right, that took centuries, even the Soviet Union, right, Russia is still there, right? Yes, satellite states fell off. Maybe the US loses Puerto Rico, maybe we lose Hawaii. But like, the US functionally has a, like exists, and I think will continue to exist. I don't see these massive dislocations that he does. And I think if they do happen, I suspect they'll happen over a kind of timeline of decades, if not centuries, not in a timeline of years. And then additionally, I just... I think the other kind of disagreement might come to the point I made earlier over kind of numbers of people, right? Like how many people, when I look at the charter cities, I look at migration patterns. And I think the two main migration patterns are rural to urban in Africa and Asia, and then low income to high income, where high income tends to be the U.S. or Europe. And those are the two, right? Like how do you take advantage of those migration flows for charter cities, where Balaji sees new migration flows, namely people fleeing previously successful high-income countries that he sees deteriorating in their standard of living and looking for alternatives. And because I don't see that deterioration happening on the scale that he does, and therefore I don't see the kind of outflow mass migration that would justify kind of the network state projects on the same level that I think he believes that they're likely to happen.
0: Yeah, yeah. Another way that I think about how his version uh, on... or how he's different from the model that's closer to what the Charter Cities Institute or Pronomos Capital Country Friedman propose is so you're front-loading the hardest part, getting the diplomatic recognition, the green fields from governments through partnerships, and Balaji is the other way around, right? You start with a community and that part, the diplomatic recognition, whatever, that's at the end. Right?
1: Yeah. And I think we also there's also a distinction on what that kind of partnership or special economic zone looks like collage uses the word sovereignty which is not a word i like to use i think for almost all of the interesting things you want to do whether it's increase the rate of economic growth whether it's allow for new drugs and medical devices you don't need sovereignty for any of these things right sovereignty is basically a kind of european concept from the late medieval era that states use to interact with each other it's been adjusted for the modern era But there are many zones that allow for different visa rules than the host country. There are many zones that allow for different business laws. There are even some zones that allow for different criminal laws. None of these things require sovereignty. They require a partnership with the host country, understanding what the host country wants and figuring out how you can build a zone or a charter city that is within that national plan of the host country but allows enough concessions to meet your own goals as well, whether it's attracting investment, whether it's creating new industries or new technologies, et cetera. And so I think trying to focus on sovereignty ends up with just, I, I don't see that as leading to many kind of successful projects just because most governments, like sovereignty is it's sacred. You can't slice it, you can't cut it up. It's a kind of sacred idea. And if you try to attack that, then you end up, I, I think it might work in some very small countries in the middle of nowhere, but I, I don't see that as really changing. Yeah, I, I, I don't see you as getting prime location. Is that your me- mechanism of approach? Yeah, yeah. I do
0: see, I tend to agree with you. I do see however, this point of the, the traditional nation state as showing lots of cracks and sort of several developments on the way that could replace some aspects of it maybe the full thing at some point
1: yeah the nation state has continually reinvented itself and i suspect it will continue to do that Mm -hmm. where if we look at right money historically at least in europe was largely private until the bank of england came along the first central bank and now all countries have central banks However, it is possible, for example, to imagine Bitcoin replacing, working as a global, I don't know, intermediary. So instead of sending, if we see a world of increased capital controls, then people might use use Bitcoin to settle payments instead of U.S. dollars or euros. And right, that is in some ways like changing the function of the nation state. And similarly, we are seeing, for example, the reemergence of kind of private militias, private armies. We're seeing Russia with the Wagner group first in Africa, now in Ukraine, even the US with a lot of our kind of Iraq and Afghanistan, we were very heavily relying on private contractors. So we're seeing the kind of fall of this, I don't know, unified national armies that were dominant in the 19th and 20th centuries and the rise of these kind of pre-modern different types of arrangements. And I think we'll continue to see things like this, but like I said, I think institutions are, are persistent so we are going to see changes. we are gonna but we are gonna see differences but yeah, like changing something as fundamental underlying as the nation state into a something that's fully new, right That's a century long process even in the digital era. And so for me it's difficult to see that on the same timeline that I think palaashi does. You can pick a different timeline,
0: but fast forward 10 years into the future, what how will? The Charter City Space look in the best case, realistic case, worst case?
1: Yeah, I think in the best case, it looks like basically you've got, I don't know, in 10 years, best case, a dozen projects on the ground in Africa where each of the projects have a minimum of 10 square kilometers, target populations of between 500,000 and 2 million people and are executing on their goals and their timeline in terms of infrastructure funding, in terms of governance, in terms of everything. Combined with that, maybe you have... A handful in, I don't know, Asia as well, right? Like India, I'm told is just, would be very difficult because it's bureaucratic. They tried a special economic zone project in 2004, I believe, and failed. And so they're unlikely to do it. And then you also have kind of activist groups that because of the history of land expropriation are very skeptical of any kind of large-scale infrastructure project that would make it difficult So hopefully that changes, but I'm basing that on second-hand information. Maybe the Philippines or Indonesia, there might be some projects, but I don't have enough domain-specific expertise to know. And then in addition to Africa, I think the other kind of thing is having, I don't know, one, two, maybe three high-income charter city projects where one maybe is in the Mediterranean, like North Africa, one maybe in Central America or the Caribbean, one maybe in, I don't know, Pacific Islands, maybe in Northern Australia, Where they're just targeting really smart people to to come work there, good governance, but a separate visa regime to to allow that. And if it's we're only talking about in ten years, right, these projects are still gonna be relatively early scale just because it takes a year or two to negotiate the concessions, the agreements, infrastructure build out takes a lot of time. But that's basically about three million people in two thousand thirty two. It's hard to know. Let's say you have twelve projects in Africa. Those projects in Africa, let's say you have, yeah, if you say 200,000, that's 2.4 million plus the high income ones, it could be three. You could say the projects in Africa are 300,000 by then, if we're optimistic. And then you're talking about four, I don't know, yeah, two to five million total residents. That's the optimistic scenario. (laughs) That's good. I like to listen. So what's the, the less optimistic scenario? Less optimistic scenario is there are lots of projects, but none of them have the exact right initial conditions. So you're talking about a few hundred thousand people. Where the projects are working, they're kind of successful in generating monetary returns, but not transformational. So there's no project you can look to and say, this is going to change the growth rate. This is going to have a higher growth rate of the surrounding region by one to two percentage points. This is going to allow the development of technology that otherwise would not have been developed. And so you have, they basically... Charter cities serve as just like a modified version of special economic zones where they are a little bit more interesting than your standard special economic zone. But like most special economic zones today, with the exception of China, they just don't serve any transformational purpose. don't have any breakout success. What's the case or what needs to happen? What will
0: you do? What can people do to make this a breakout success, to make the optimistic case happen?
1: Yeah, I think to me, the... The basic challenge with charter cities is that you have to put all these things together to get it. and to get government buy-in, for example, it helps if you show up with capital. But showing up with capital is very difficult when you don't have a specific project with spreadsheets, with numbers, et cetera. So, It's a bit of a chicken and egg problem in Africa, for example, the way the Charter Cities Institute is trying to overcome this. We're working with several local partners on the ground, organizing a conference in about a year, probably in Rwanda, their Kigali International Financial Center, where we will solicit proposals for all our countries, as well as private developers for charter cities, and be able to create a pipeline of charter city projects. And then in creating that pipeline, we can align that pipeline, I think, Luckily, the expertise on terms of structuring and sequencing now does exist. I'm not sure they existed really five years ago, but I think there are several groups that have a general understanding of how to like structure and sequence charter cities if the right opportunity arises. So combine that kind of deal flow of potential charter city projects with the sequencing of capital for the initial feasibility studies, for the land acquisition, for negotiation with government, and then for the infrastructure build-out. And once you set that process up and sit correctly, I think hopefully there there are several somewhat good outcomes. So I think that's what the Charter Cities Institute is doing. And then I think in addition to that, as mentioned, the kind of what ends up being the game changer is ideally a kind of successful project that demonstrates how quickly things are possible. I'm also working on a book that I hope to publish probably late next year that can help draw attention, get people interested We've been tossing around this idea of shooting a documentary as well, visiting a lot of these projects around the world, as well as visiting places like Singapore, Shenzhen, Hong Kong, and Dubai to spread this narrative, get, build public awareness. And then three is, I think, just the continuing to build out the capital pools. And one of the projects I'm currently with, we're negotiating with a government and they've expressed interest in this concept. But the only reason we've been able to get this far is because we're showing up with capital. With several hundred million dollars of credible capital to complete a transaction. And there, like we're lucky in the sense that this is a good enough project, it can justify that. It's not really a risk now because, right, until the money changes hands, it's not there. But even you can only ask that if the project is good enough, right? You can't ask that if the initial conditions would not justify that type of investment. And then as we build out, as we and other groups build out relationships with investors, then we de-risk them. We can get a better understanding of, okay, right, like I can successfully pitch this. This idea isn't as crazy as it might have been three years ago. We have that sense. We have that understanding. We can't, the execution risk is much lower, et cetera. And so it's this chicken and egg problem in terms of getting government buy-in, getting capital, identifying land that all need to be solved a little bit simultaneously to, to get charter cities to really reach their full potential. Fantastic. Anything else that you'd like to draw attention to, to help listeners
0: understand Charter Cities better?
1: Check out the Charter Cities Institute. The website is chartercitiesinstitute.org. We have Twitter. We have, I think we have Instagram. We publish lots of good content. I'm not the executive director anymore, but I'm still on the board. You can follow me at Twitter, Mark Lutter, dot And yeah, feel free to send me an email too. Thanks. Fantastic. Mark, it was amazing to have you
0: on the show. Thanks so much for talking to us about charter cities and the future of city development. Great. Thank you for having me.